Well, good morning. It's great for me to be here. We look forward every year coming up here. Last year, I think I did a Zoom with you in my office, which for me was kind of torture, having to look at myself as I preached for an hour. That was a little torture for me, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. I can't even remember what I preached on, but um, it's good to be here this morning, though. We, we look forward to being up. We love so many of you, and your church has been such an encouragement to our ministry. And Lord willing, maybe next summer we'll be able to have another summer camp uh, where you guys can come and help serve. Speaking of serving, um, that's what I really wanted to talk about this morning, um, the importance of serving. And this is sort of a broad spectra of serving I'm talking about. I'm talking about serving those of you that are married, having, serving your spouses in a, in a godly way, serving our friends, serving here at the church, serving those that you work with. So... Um, this is important that we as Christians um, learn how to serve. It's a challenge in our world that we live today. You know, we live in a time where there's a dramatic decline in service. I remember a day, this is many, many moons ago, where you would go to a gas station and you'd have four people run outside. One guy would check your oil. One guy would put gas in your car. One guy would wash the windshield. And another person would uh, be there to help in any other way. And they would come out with smiling faces to serve you. Unfortunately, we don't see that much today. We're very fortunate to even see someone smile at a, at a store when they serve us in a, in a small way. There once was an idea that it was important to serve and help another. But we live in such a world of self-service that's taken away some of that. With all the technology we have today, you can pretty much self-serve yourself anywhere. You can buy things at home and from the internet. Sadly to say, the idea of serving has also lost ground in the church. It's lost ground in the church. Many people, they serve, feel like they serve God when they come to church and put in their hour and a half and go home. Uh, they come to church more with having their needs met. They come to church and, with the idea, I'm here today to have you meet my needs. But that's where we've had a lot of these seeker-friendly churches come out of this sort of mindset where they try to find specific needs for people that they can meet. And now, don't get me wrong, we want to encourage and meet needs, but that shouldn't be the main reason we're coming to church, is just to have my needs met, that you need to meet my needs today. Well, what's caused service to be so unpopular today in our world? Well, I think we live in a world that very much embodies itself in self-interest, very self-interest society today. They want their, their pleasures and their interests and their flesh to be satisfied. Their goal in society is to acquire material goods, buy things, clothes, etc., and to make themselves happy. We all know who the, the leader and ruler of this world is, Satan, and Satan definitely wants to draw us into that selfish mindset because that's, what, that's what's come from Satan. That's the mindset that Satan had uh, when he rebelled against God. Isaiah 14, 14, if you want to turn to Isaiah 14, 14, We'll get an idea of what the mindset that Satan had here. Isaiah 14, 14. This is talking about a, a king, a prideful king. But what we're seeing that's embodied in this king is, is evil, satanic attitude. And in verse 13, he says here, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We see five I wills here from Satan. 
from this evil king. And this sort of embodies our, our attitude in, in the world we live today. Also today, society doesn't tend to respect those that are servants. They respect those that are powerful. They respect those that are, uh, have a, make a lot of money and are wealthy. Those are the people that get the respect. And the wealthy use their economic power to get their way, don't they? And I think there's a lot of involvement today in our government that has a lot of involvement with the people with money that have big influence in decisions that are being made today in our society. Also, we have the feminist movement today, which is opposed to biblical servanthood. The roles of women are changing today. And for you women, it's difficult. My heart goes out to you in this world we live today. To be a homemaker and a mother and a servant role in a marriage is sort of thought looked down on today. And the feminist movement, unfortunately, has moved into the church also today. And more and more women are taking leadership positions and teaching positions in the church. So we see that servanthood is an endangered species. But Galatians 5.13 really makes it clear that we are to serve one another with love. We are to serve one another with love. And that's sort of what we're going to be looking at today. But what we want to do is look at, we want to really analyze what love is. What love is, because unfortunately, again, we're getting the wrong message about love today. The message that we're getting today about love, it's a, it's a selfish love. It's about me. You need to make me happy. You need to serve me and make me happy. So we, we see that we are battling against the wrong attitude about love. So it's, it's, it's a challenge for us to do what's right. But for us to effectively serve one another... Before I get into these scriptures, we're going to be eventually getting into 1 Corinthians, rather, chapter 13, and talking about what love looks like. But before we do that, I want to say that if we're going to be able to do anything I'm going to share with you this morning, we must love God. That's going to be the foundation. We cannot do these things without loving God. If you want to turn to Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verse 36 and following. And this is an interesting part of the Bible because Jesus is being tested here. And he was, a lot of guys would like, a lot of tested him. This is a lawyer that wants to test him with this question he's going to ask him. He's going to try to trick Jesus, which is kind of a losing battle to try to trick Jesus, but that's what he's, exactly what he's trying to do. And the, the, the Pharisees were really, really embraced the laws. That they were really law people. And that's, that's what they were really they were cling to. And so he says, asks him in verse 37 here, he says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Rather than verse 36, he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment to the law? And Jesus answered him in verse 37, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Why do we want to love God? Well, we want to love God because he first loved us, Right? Turn to 1 John 4, 19. 1 John 4, 19. He reached out to us with love. 1 John 4, 19. Says that we know and that we are, we are of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know the Son of God has come and given us understanding so we know him and he is true and we are true. And then if we go back here to verse 9 is the verse I really wanted to go to. Verse 9, it says here, Beloved, we'll go back a little bit further in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love comes from God. He's the one that teaches us what love's all about. And then in verse 9 and following, he tells us how, Je- how Jesus showed love to us, how God showed love to us. He says, by this, the love of God was manifested that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He showed his love by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. The ultimate example of love, sending his son to die for us on the cross. But we must love God. That is so important that we desire to love God and have that loving relationship with him. Well, how does that look as far as loving God? Well, it's, he said here, we love God with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul here. And what it's saying is that love needs to be an, an act of mind, a will. It's a dedication and it's a commitment. It's not a love that's based on feelings. It's a love of commitment and choice that we make. We are to love God with every part of our being. The heart refers to the core of our being. The soul is our emotion. The mind is used here for the sense of intellect, willful vigor, and determination. So genuine love should be not a feeling, but a commitment that we make, knowingly knowing what he has done for us, his goodness towards us. The love of God is a true mark of a believer. And it should motivate us to obey him. It should motivate us. That's where the motivation should come, to obey him. We want to love God's law. We want to be sent to how God feels. We want to be sensitive to him. We want to love what he loves. We want to love who we want to love whom God loves. We want to hate what God hates. We want to grieve over our sin. We don't want to love the world. We want to love what, what Christ loves. And that's so important. And one of the ways that he really wants us to love is to love others. Is to love others. This is so crucial. This should distinguish us from the world. Because the love that we offer is a different kind of love, as I talked about earlier. It's not a selfish kind of love. It's a sacrificial love for others. As I said earlier, the world teaches us love. They base love on physical attraction, on sex, on needy. Uh, What can I benefit from this love? Um, it's, It's all selfish. It's not a real love. And it's, again, as I said before, this is not a love that's based on feelings because our feelings are up and down all the time. We can't base love on feelings. Those of you who are married would understand that especially. All right, well, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to go through a lesson on what love really looks like. 1 Corinthians 13. Interesting, this, this text is talking about spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, Apostle Paul is talking about the fact that we're all gifted uniquely. We have diversity in the body. There's unique gifts. But then in chapter 13, he wants to talk about the greatest gift. And he's not talking about tongues here as being the greatest gift here, but love. And what he's basically saying is that you, you really can't love, uh, serve anyone. and You can't really use your gifts rightly unless you do it with love. And if love's not there, it, it's, it's worthless. So love should be the motivating factor in how we love and serve people. And that, again, as I said earlier, that would include our marriages. That would include our friendships that we have with people. Even in your secular jobs, you want to serve your people in love. So 
This is across the board an attitude that we need to have, but it's, it'll be good here this morning just to look, what is love? What is really love all about? How does it look, and how are we to flush this out? So we have a lot of characteristics to go through. I don't know if we'll get through all of them here. A couple of them I might go through real quickly. There's a few I really want to hone in on, though, that I really think are important. But we'll just hit on them. So here we are. I'm going to read the, the scriptures here in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It says, love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag and is not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, and it endures all things. Love never fails. Love never fails. All right, number one is love is patient. We live in a world of impatience, don't we? We can get to things so fast today with our internet and our phones. The way things are designed today, we can get to things really quickly. I know for you, but I struggle waiting in line sometimes. One area, that, in fact, usually if you pray for something, God's going to test you, Right? I, I always pray for patience, and the Lord will, seems to test me. My biggest battle sometimes is when I'm coming home from work and I'm tired. I'm hungry. I want to get home and have dinner. I'm exhausted. I have to put some gas in my car. So I go in to pay for my gas, and there's some guy in front of me, or gal, that's buying lotto tickets. Not just one. He's buying a lot of lotto tickets. And I'm sitting here. I'm hungry and I'm tired. And this is where I have to murmur to myself and pray, Lord, Help me to be patient here while I'm waiting in line for this guy taking his tickets. But the Lord will test us. He will test us. All the things I'm going to be sharing with you this morning, he's going to test us to see if we're willing to live these things out. So patience is, is so important. Being patient on people at times that are difficult to be patient with. The Lord will bring people in our lives also to teach us patience. When you get married, those of you that are married, those of you who will get married, you're going to have to learn patience in your marriage. That will be something you'll definitely have to learn. So patience is, is going to really be a virtue that we're going to see that sort of coincides with everything we're going to talk about here this morning. James 1, 2, to, James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, God will use suffering to test our patience, to teach us endurance. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have a perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He is teaching us endurance, learning to, to stand, learning to stand pressure, learning to deal with difficulties in a patient way. Sometimes God teaches, is teaching us to learn to wait on Him, and that takes a lot of patience. We pray for something. And yet, it's not, our prayers are not answered. God will definitely use trials. And in most cases, he's always using trials in our lives to teach us something. There's always something we can learn when we're going through a difficult time. Romans 5, 3 to 5 says all, the same thing here. Exalt in your tribulations, knowing that your tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. This is how he works in our lives as through difficult times. Patience is something that we are going to have to learn the rest of our lives something we'll never get down completely. God was patient. God teaches us patience. He, he is so patient with us. 
we disobey him and we, uh, so many times, we sin so many times how he's so willing to be patient and forgiving towards us. He is a long-suffering God. Robert Ingersoll, a well-known atheist of the last century, often would stop in the middle of his lectures. He would have these lectures where he would talk, he would try to prove to people there's not a God. And he would stop in the middle of his lectures and say, I'm going to give God five minutes to strike me down now for what I've just said. And he would hold his watch out and wait five minutes waiting for God to strike him down. And after five minutes, he'd say, see, there's no God. He didn't do anything to me. Well, a gentleman that was in that room with him walked out of, the, walked out of his lecture and shook his head saying, does this gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of, God, of eternal God in five minutes? But we have a God that is eternally long-suffering. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin Stanton. He called Lincoln a clown and a gorilla. He said, if you, if you don't have to go to Africa to find a gorilla because you can find one here in Springfield, Illinois, by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln would never respond to a slander. He never attacked back. He was always patient and gracious with this man. And when he needed a secretary of war, he chose Mr. Stanton to be to work with him. Years later, as the slain body of President Lincoln lay in state, Stanton went to visit his coffin. And as he crouched down, tears were coming down his eyes, and he said, here lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. Stanton's animosity had finally been broken because of Lincoln's long-suffering, gracious, and non-retaliatory spirit towards him. And at the end of the day, patience had won out with Edward Stanton. And our patience will win out. It's a win-win situation when we can learn to be patient with each other. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians and go to the next characteristic. Love is kind. Love is kind. Being kind is the counterpart of being patient. To be kind means to be useful and serving, gracious. It's desiring to do good for another. It desires the other person's welfare. When Jesus was commanding his disciples to love their enemies, he did not simply say, feel kindly to them, but he said to be kind to your enemies. Be kind to your enemies. In Matthew 5, 40 to 41, he says, if, you want anyone, if anybody wants to sue you, take your shirt, let them have your shirt and your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile with them, you go two miles with them. This is the kind of attitude that Paul is talking about here. And God, again, is a supreme example of kindness. Turn to Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4. God is our ultimate example of kindness. Romans 2.4. says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and forbearance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What a blessing to think, realize that God's kindness has led us to repentance. His goodness and graciousness has led us to repentance. Being kind to another is, is crucial. And again, every, all the attributes I'm going to be sharing here deal with being kind, being kind to one another. Now we're going to look at some atti atti attitudes that are wrong in first, going back to 1 Corinthians. These are attitudes that we need to really stay away from having. In spite of the fact that the world embraces these attitudes, but we are not. The first one is jealousy. We're still in verse 4. It says, love is not jealous. 
Love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. In fact, Shakespeare called jealousy as the green sickness. Jesus called it the evil eye. Jealousy and envy kind of go hand in hand. And what we're saying about jealousy is, I want what the other person has. If they have a car, I want a better one. If they're praised, I want to be praised. It's almost like comparing ourselves to others. It's a very selfish mindset, jealousy. It's desi- and sometimes it's even desiring evil for someone. Sometimes we're not happy when somebody gets blessed. When somebody has gotten something really good, we get a little bit ble- jealous. How come I can't have that? It's one of the hardest battles we're going to have to fight is jealousy. Because the world is preaching what? You need to have this. You need to have this to be happy. You've got to have all these things to be happy. Jealousy is a very, it's a, it's a strong, earnest desire. It's not a harmless sin. It was Eve's jealousy of God that sparked her pride to which Satan successfully appealed. The first murder in the Bible was Cain who committed, killed his brother Abel because he was jealous of Abel. Turn to James 3, James 3, 14 to 16. James 3, 14 to 16. Talking about what jealousy looks like here and the, and the danger of it, the ugliness of it. James 3, 14 to 16 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Then he goes to say in verse 17, The wisdom from above is pure and peaceable. The wisdom from God is what we want to look at. His, the attitude that God would want us to have. But jealousy is a, is a cancer. The Greek term for jealousy is, is, a, is bitter. It's used of an undrinkable water. And with, combined with jealousy, it defines a harsh, resentful attitude towards others. And what would be the opposite of jealousy? The right attitude to have would be contentment. Being content. That is so hard for us to be content in this world today. Turn to Philippians. The Apostle Paul makes an amazing statement about contentment. Philippians. He really, really makes it clear, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, the mindset that we need to have. And this is something that we can really apply to our own lives. Philippians 4, verse 11, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to get, live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of abundance and suffering need. And then he says a profound statement here, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For us to be content, we're going to ask, we need Lord's strength to help us to be content people. To be self-sufficient is what we're saying. Satisfied with what we have. And we can be happy with what we have. If we don't get anything more than that, we can be satisfied and be content. Getting our joy from the Lord rather than from things. And Paul knew how to get, get along with humble means. Paul lived, and many times he lived very humbly. He didn't have a lot of food to eat. Didn't have a lot of clothes, didn't live a real, real uh, he would not be considered a rich man, had a lot, of, a lot of material things, he didn't. He lived a very humble life. People were very gracious to him, though they gave him a lot of things, but he was a very humble man. But we have to learn 
to be content in our lives, and that's a battle that we have, learning to be content. Well, now we're going to look at two attitudes that really, as we go back to 1 Corinthians, two attitudes that really deal with pride. Paul says here, love does not brag, here in verse 4, and is not arrogant. I always think of pride as one of the most dangerous. Pride will destroy relationships. It will destroy relationships. When I counsel married couples, most of the time the reason they're having trouble in their marriage is because of pride. And pride will come out a different way. It comes out, first he says, it doesn't, it, it's, it's brags. It boasts. The person wants to boast about himself. Trying to make others jealous of him. Bragging is a way to build yourselves up. It's, a, it's trying to be a spiritual show-off. I had a gentleman in my church that had the real, I had a gift of evangelism. He would, he'd love to go out in the streets and hand out tracts and evangelize. Very gifted. But he'd come back on Sundays and share us his experiences. And basically, it was his time to boast about himself or how great of a job he did and all the people that he shared the gospel to. It's sadly to say this young man, we had to eventually church discipline him because of pride. He was unteachable. He was not teachable. And it's sad because he had a gift of evangelism. He really had a gift of evangelism. But again, we want, to do, we want to be able to do something in love and in humility when we serve. We don't want to boast. And then he talks about arrogance here. Arrogance, again, is pride. It could be really defined as self-worship. It's a person who believes that in himself are the source of what is good, right, worthy of praise. And they believe these things. They've got themselves convinced. Thomas Watson once said that pride seeks to ungod God. Proverbs 16.5, Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination of the Lord, and surely he will not be unpunished. So pride is an epidemic vice. It's an epidemic vice. It's everywhere. It manifests itself in so many different ways. Chuck Swindoll once stated that the world's smallest package is a man wrapped up in himself. Proverbs 26.12 says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. It's also been said that pride is the root of every sin and evil. It's an easy snare for the devil to use in us. And it's a spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain. It intoxicates it. And it's idolatry and self-worship. So this is an area that we all have to examine ourselves. Because the world is saying what? Be proud. Love yourself. That's what the world is pounding away at us. You see those commercials on TV, you deserve a break today. You deserve this. You deserve that. The world is pounding away at us to be proud people. William Carey, who was a, the father of modern missions, was a brilliant linguist. But he was raised in a simple home in England. In his early manhood, he worked as a cobbler. One time at a dinner party, a man came up to him, a, a snob, I guess you could call him. And he, I think he wanted to make fun of Mr. Carey. He says, Mr. Carey. I heard that you once worked as a shoemaker. Well, Carrie answered him, Oh, no, your lordship. I was not a shoemaker. I was a shoe repairman. This man scratched his head and kind of walked away. Galatians 6.3 says, For anyone that thinks he is something when he is not, he, he deceives himself. He deceives himself. And the Bible talks much about humility, being humble. And the greatest example of, of humility was Christ. 
because he humbled himself to be a man to the point of death. He humbled himself, became a bondservant, and died on the cross for us. So humility, how does humility look? How can we be humble people? How can we be humble people? Well, obviously, we need to ask God's help. We have to ask God's help to humble us. That's a scary prayer. If we ask God to humble us, he, he might have to hit us on top of the head, maybe a little bit, or he might have to break us, but that's a great prayer to have. Lord, help me to be a humble person. Learn the one another's, learning to get your eyes off yourself and learning the one another's, caring for one another, praying for one another, admonishing one another, serving one another, as we're talking about here this morning. Learning to put off pride and put on humility. It should be a, a, a way of life that we learn to be men and women of humility. Charles Spurgeon once said that every Christian has a choice of being a humble person or being humbled. And I think when he's saying being humble, he's saying being humbled by God. To the humble person, though, God gives grace. James 4, 6. If you want to turn to James 4, 6. says here, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. This is, a, this is only something that Christians can do. We're the only ones that can become humble people because we have God who can help us and God who sets the example. And this should be a great trait for us to be people of humility. The world will look at us as different. We'll be different than the world. John MacArthur says that humility creates the vacuum that divine grace fills. When we can learn to see ourselves rightly in reference to God and others, we will shine with God's glory. And then Colossians 3.12 says, As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of humility. Putting on humility is not a one-time thing. It's not, something, it's not just a one-time thing because pride will never die. We have to fight pride every single day. We must die to it daily. The Puritan Thomas Brooks once said, get humble and keep humble. And that's kind of what we need to think about. It should be a day-to-day thing of dying to ourselves. All right, we go back to 1 Corinthians 13 now. We're going to talk about being rude to each other. He says here in verse 5, love does not act unbecomingly. And what is it saying here is, is not being rude with each other. Not being rude with each other. We want to be kind and compassionate to each other, sensitive to each other's needs. We must esteem the other person more important than us. And, and I think being rude would really come into play how we talk to each other, how we communicate to each other. Poor communication can be a huge obstacle in our relationships. What words we say. Communication, good communication or bad communication have huge consequences. Negative communication, God is not honored. Discord can occur in, in bad communication. Issues may, na- may remain unresolved. Bitters can settle in and drive a wedge in a relationship. And in a marriage, it can destroy a marriage. Bad communication. Good communication, God is honored. If we do good communication, harmony can exist in our relationships. 
Disagreements can be worked out, problem areas can be resolved, and wrong ideas can be corrected. And forgiveness and trust can be learned. Good communication. But how we... Ephesians says, let no unwholesome word, Ephesians 4, 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word which is good for edification according to the need for the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Our tongues can be dangerous. James, turn to James chapter 4, talking about our tongues. James chapter 3, rather, James 3. James talks about the danger of our tongues, how we can speak to each other. He says here in James 3, verse 5, he says, also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest fire is set aflame on such a small fire, and the tongue is a, the fire, the very world of, world, world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members at that which is, defines the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Tongue can really spread and hurt many people. And we counsel a lot of marriages where they, I had a couple in my office one time and I heard the way they were talking to each other and I couldn't believe it. I, and I was, I was, on, I couldn't ever heard anything like this, how they spoke to each other. The Bible said that we need to learn to be slow to speak and quick to listen, being careful what we say with our words. We don't want to be bitter with our speech. We don't want to be angry when we speak. We don't want to yell and be loud and be harsh. We don't want to slander, speak evil. We don't want to malice. We, don't, we want to speak in kindness and gracious, tenderhearted, compassionate, slow to speak, being careful how we speak to each other. Colossians 4, 6 really, really sums this up. So he says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. Learning how to speak to each other in grace and purpose. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. We might make it through all these here. Chapter 5 here it says, love does not seek in verse 5, rather, in chapter 13, love does not seek its own. Another area that can destroy our relationships is selfishness. And I think a lot of these characteristics I've been sharing are all dealing with selfishness in one way or another. In an English village, there was a, there was a tombstone. And on this tombstone it said, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Nowhere is he or how he fares, and nobody knows and nobody cares. Sad to say, this sounded like a man that was very lonely. A lonely man, a bitter man, and a selfish man. All he cared about was gathering wealth. I don't know if any of you guys have ever visited the Hertz Castle. It's an amazing, amazing place. But here's a man that had a lot of money. He was able to buy pretty much anything he wanted to. He made his money in the, with the newspaper. He owned many newspapers. He's the one that really put together the, the newspapers that we have today. But here was a man that, towards the end of his life, lived by himself in this mansion. Nobody wanted to be around him. He was a bitter man, yet he had everything the world would say would make you happy. Selfishness is a sad thing. There was also a tombstone in a, court, in a courtyard in St. Paul's Cathedral that read, 
sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, and his heart to God. Here's a man that gave himself to others and gave himself to serve God. The Webster Dictionary defines selfishness as someone who is concerned excessively or exclusively with himself, seeking advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others. This is our fallen nature. This is the fallen nature. Linsky, a well-known Bible commentator, said that you cure selfishness and you've just replanted the Garden of Eden. Philippians 2, though. Turn to Philippians 2. This really gives us the mindset that we need to have. Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Great, great verses on the attitude we need to have about selfishness. Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4. It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility in mind, regard one another as more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is a great attitude for us to have, asking God to help us to have this mindset regarding others more important than ourselves. Romans 12, 10 says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another. Galatians 5, 13 says, Do not give an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. The flesh is going to want us to think about ourselves. We want to get our eyes off the flesh and get our eyes on, on serving others and serving God. Christ is the ultimate example. Of, again, Matthew 20, 28 says, He came to serve. That was his goal. Christ came to serve us, to serve others. That was his, that was his life goal. That should be our desire and goal, is to serve others. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Here's another cancer in, our, in a relationship. And we see this in, again in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is not provoked. Anger will destroy relationships. This is talking about anger. Anger will destroy relationships. And, and Christ in, in Matthew 5 shows the seriousness of anger. If you want to turn to Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22, he shows the seriousness of anger when he compares it to murder. In verse 21, he says, in Matthew 5, he says, You've heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And I think Christ is saying this, anger is a dangerous thing. You know, we watch the news and we see people in the violence we see in homes today where a husband comes home and shoots his family or whatever may be happening, mother, a mother shoots somebody in the family. We know that that's motivated by anger. Anger can make us do really, really serious things. We need to nip it at the bud if we have any problems with anger. Proverbs 14, 29 says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Anger can destroy marriages. We have we've had to deal with many marriages at our church where the anger is so bad in the house that we have to separate the, the couple and try to work, try to help them out because there's so much anger and bitterness in, in the marriage. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry, do not sin. Anger will cause us to sin. It will cause us to sin. Ephesians 4.31, if you want to turn to Ephesians 4.31, I have you guys going all over the Bible today, forgive me, Ephesians 
He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Putting it away. Wrath has something to do with rage, passion of the moment. And how does this look in relationships? Anger, anger could be yelling and screaming, cursing, attacking somebody verbally, hitting someone. We, we have marriages where there's hitting going on. Telling someone off and then it can get so bad that somebody can really seriously get injured. To where somebody pulls a gun out. If they have a gun in the house. You can also see those that have the slow burning anger, frustration. They become irritated, frustrated, disgusted. They clam up being moody. It comes from our hearts, anger. It's an issue of our hearts. It's something that maybe, maybe a person had grown up with. But it's, a, it's, it's an issue that we have to deal with. When we see it, we need to deal with it. And it involves a lot of self, self-control, learning self-control. Sometimes we get angry because we're just not getting things our way. It's a selfish motive. We're, we, have, we have certain goals and desires that we want, and if they're disrupted, we get angry. How do we change? Is it not working? Is that working now? <laughs> I have a loud voice, so maybe I don't. Thanks. Um, how do we get away from being angry people? We need to confess it. We need to confess it and seek God's help. Ask God for change in our life. If maybe there needs to be some forgiveness, change of, change of uh, and learning to be disciplined, self control. Holding accountable. Ask somebody to hold us, account, hold us accountable for our anger. And it's interesting, the number one reason for both mental and physical illness in our society today is the overwhelming preoccupation with having our rights met. I think we talked about that earlier. With everyone fighting for his or her rights, no one can really succeed or be happy. You can never be happy. Everyone grabs, no one gives, everyone loses, even if he gets what they want. We can gain when a person gains a privilege or recognition that we want for ourselves because it is right. We put our rights before what, what we're commanded to do Love is concerned about what God thinks, though. But when we lose our temper, a great deal of damage can occur in a very short time. Even a small temper bombs can leave much hurt and much damage, especially when they explode on a regular basis. Lovelessness is the cause of our tempers, and the right biblical love is the only cure, the right biblical love. Asking God to help us to love in the right way, like we're learning here this morning. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians Chapter 13, and we're going to talk about now, we're going to talk about forgiveness. It says here, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It is so important to learn to forgive. Forgiveness is, is probably one of the most important attributes of love, especially in a marriage, really learning to forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, if you'd like to turn to Ephesians 4.32, really talks about this kind of forgiveness says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We've been forgiven much, and we continue to be forgiven much by God. We need to be willing to forgive others. 
God's forgiveness is complete. In fact, when God forgives us, he forgets. Whereas we trouble, we have trouble even when we forgive some people, we're still harboring bitterness sometimes. We need to have a completely forgive others because true love will forgive. We don't want to learn to be, we don't want to be resentful people to hold grudges. And forgiveness can really, really uh, cause us to love even people that are difficult to love in our lives because we will have people that God will bring in our lives that are hard to forgive. They're going to be hard to forgive. But that is so important that we are willing to forgive because we can come to God anytime we want, right? And ask for his forgiveness. And he is faithful to forgive us. It's such a blessing that we have that forgiveness from God. All right, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. I think we're going to make it here this morning. All right. Verse, okay, verse 6 we're not going to spend too much on. I'm just going to say that we, when it says love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, basically it's saying that we, want, we don't want to rejoice in sin. We should not be happy when, we, when we're sinning. We should have the mindset that Matthew 5 has of mourning over our sins. We should be people who are broken and mourning over our sins. We never want to get um, used to sinning and, make, and find, you know, just kind of getting callous to sinning all the time. We, want, we never want to rejoice. And it says also we, don't want to, we also want to rejoice with the truth. We're blessed to have the truth here in a world that is, is so confused, in a world that is so mixed up and confused. We are so blessed to have the truth here. We, we should be rejoicing that we have God's word and his truth. It's a big responsibility, right, for us to have the truth, though. It's a big responsibility. We have to, we have to share the gospel to others. We have to give the truth out. But we should rejoice the fact that we have this truth, this amazing truth. All right, verse 7, we're going to have a few more characteristics here. Verse 7 says, love bears all things. This is an interesting statement. First time I read this, I wasn't quite sure what this meant, bearing all things. But we've been talking about the fact that love rejects jealousy, bragging, arrogance, resentment, and anger, and selfishness. But love that bears all things is talking of protecting others from, from ridicule or harm. Genuine love does not gossip or will not listen to gossip. Even if someone has sinned, love tries to correct it with least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin, but it's anxious to protect the sinner. Yet in our fallen human nature, the opposite tends to happen. There's a perverse pleasure in exposing someone's faults and failures. This is what we call a gossip. We're filled with that today in our media, aren't we? We watch the news every day. There's or talk shows, people are, are slandering each other, gossiping. This is what sells on the news stations. This is what sells our newspapers, magazines, books, internet sites. This is, this is an epidemic problem today in our society. And people get pleasure out of this. You know, we can all be a little self-righteous at times. When we expose another person's sin, and can, we can kind of take kind of pleasure sometimes in that. Love should never take part in that. It should not gloat, expose, exploit, or condemn. Yes, we need to go to a brother in love. If a brother's in sin, we go to them in love for, to get them stored. But we don't want to sit there and gossip about them and say, oh, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what so-and-so did? There's no justification for that. Love should warn, it should correct, it should exhort, it should rebuke and discipline, yes. 
but we should do it in a loving way, not to, not to destroy someone. There's a story about a young soldier who was going to be sentenced to death, Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England, was going to sentence this man to a death that was really not, from, not right. It was a young man. And the young man's girlfriend, who was engaged to him, pleaded with Cromwell to spare the life of her boyfriend, but to no avail. The young man was to be executed. And when the curfew bell sounded, and when the sexton repeatedly pulled the rope, the bell did not make a sound. They were going to pull the thing down, make the sound, and, this, and the guillotine would come down and kill this young man, but it didn't, the bell didn't go off. Well, what happened? The girl had climbed into the belfry and wrapped herself around it, around the clapper so it could not strike the bell. Yes, her body was all smashed up and bruised, but she did not let go of the clapper, and, and the bell never went off. She managed to climb down, bruised and bleeding, to meet those awaiting the execution. When she explained what she had done, Oliver Cromwell began to weep. He was moved by this. He said, stop the sentence to this man. Do not kill him. A poet wrote a, wrote a beautiful story about this. He says, it goes like this. At his feet, told, we tell the story, showed her hands all bruised and torn and her sweet young face still haggard with anguish as it worn. It touched his heart with sudden pity, lit his eyes with misty light, and he said, go, your lover lives, said Cromwell. Curfew will not ring tonight. Love, love covers a multitude of sins. And we need to be gracious to those that are struggling in, with sin in our, that we know of. We should go to them in love. All right. Go back to 1 Corinthians 8. It says here, 1 Corinthians 13 rather, it says, love believes all things. Verse 7, love believes all things. That doesn't mean that we believe everything, that we're going to believe everything we hear. But love should not be suspicious or cynical. It believes the best outcome for the one who has done wrong. If a loved one is accused of something wrong, love will consider him innocent until proven guilty. And if he turns out to be guilty, love will credit the, for the best motive because of this. Love trusts, love has confidence, and love believes. Job's friends showed a lack of love. I don't know if you remember the story of Job, but his friends would, came to him to counsel him and basically, uh, they accused him that he was a sinner. I don't know if you remember the story of Job. He lost everything. God took, allowed Satan to take everything away from him. He lost his job. He lost his family. I think he, the only person that survived was his wife. But Job's friends came to him and just immediately assumed he was a sinner and it was all his fault. Instead of encouraging him. They were convinced the problems were caused by him. Also, the lovelessness of the scribes and Pharisees make it a practice to see the worst of people. They saw the worst of Christ. They accused Christ of things that he didn't even do. Love is the only true way to trust. And when the trust is broken, love's first reaction should be to heal and restore. And we talked about this a little bit a minute ago. Galatians 6.1 says, Brother, if you see a man caught in a trespass, you, are, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one look into yourself, lest you be tempted. All right, two more here. It says here, love hopes in all things in verse 7 here after in 1 Corinthians 13. Love hopes all things. We have much hope. Even though we live in a world that, that looks hopeless, the world, we have tremendous hope because of Christ because we know 
that our lives here are a short time compared to eternity. We have promises of the Bible that we know God is faithful to carry out. We can be children of hope in spite of whatever's going on in our lives, whatever difficulties we're having. There's a story about a dog who stayed in an airport for over, in a large city for over five years waiting for his master to return. Many people who worked at the airport would feed this dog and take care of him. He would not leave the same spot. Every day he would be at the same spot waiting for his master to come back. He would not give up hope that someday he and his master would be reunited. If the dog's love for his master can produce this kind of hope, how much longer should our hope last that we have as Christians? We have tremendous hope that the Lord is going to come back someday and make things right here. All right, we have two more here. Verse 7 here, love endures all things. The term endure here is like a, is a military term for an army's position of holding strong to a position at all costs. Every hardship and every suffering was to be endured and to be held fast. Love will hold fast to those it loves and all things and endures all things at all costs. It can stand against struggles. It can stand against trials and opposition. It refuses to stop bearing and stop believing or hoping. It will never stop loving. Remember Stephen, who was persecuted, falsely persecuted, ridiculed, he was rejected. There were taunts at him, people were mocking him, they were throwing stones at him. Eventually they killed him. But before he died, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like the Lord, he loved to the end. Even his enemies, he loved to the end. His love endured before he died, his love endured to the end. So love bears whatever otherwise is unbearable. It believes otherwise what is unbelievable. It hopes what otherwise is hopeless. It endures when anything less than love would give up. And after love bears it, believes it, and after it believes it, it hopes. And after hopes, it endures. The endurance, the unending climax of love. Lastly, this sort of sums up everything we've talked about here this morning. Love never fails. Fails is a, is a basic idea of falling as used of a, a flower or a leaf, withering and falling to the ground and withering and decaying. Never refers to time. Is the idea that not, not, no one time will divine love ever fail or ever wither or ever decay. By nature, it is permanent and can never be abolished. Now, when we say love never fails, we're not talking about, talking about success. We're not talking about some magic key that Christians can unlock every opportunity and guarantee every endeavor. It's, no, it's not a spiritual formula. On the other hand, whenever and wherever Christians are successful in their lives and ministry, it's always going to be through love. Now, love does not overpower human will. We cannot always accomplish our purposes perfectly, no matter how loving and spiritual and self, selfish we may be. But no godly work can be accomplished without love. Success will not always be a part of love, but love will always be part of true spiritual success. It, never it has a lastness. It will never fail or decay. The Christian love is life, both and are, are eternal. And love is a supreme characteristic of the life of God and should be the life, supreme characteristic of us. God is love, and the one who abides in, in love abides in God. Now, this is difficult. These characteristics I've been sharing this morning are difficult. It's, there's, a, there's a high standard here, and we're all kind of wondering, how in the world can we do this? 
The requirements are great. And love con- will confront our weaknesses and our inabilities at times. It'll show, to show us sometimes that our hearts can be cold. It can show us that maybe we're not as humble as we should be. But we have a great God who can give us the grace and the strength we need to leave these things out. We have a God who is, who is a great example to us of his love and forgiveness and graces to us who fail him constantly. And we can do this with God's strength. And what a tremendous testimony we can be to the world. Left to ourselves, we can't do this. But God can give us the strength and the grace. And what a testimony. And God, at the end of the day, who gets the glory but God? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful this morning just to go through some basic characteristics. Uh, I know many of us have read this section of the Bible before about what love looks like. We can get very confused about love. The world can confuse us. It's not selfish. It's not give me this or I want this. I want my rights. We live in a world today that demand for their rights. And if they're going to get them one way or another. Father, we see that love is totally different than what the world is showing us. It's a selfless love. It's really, at the end of the day, getting our eyes off ourselves and wanting to love and serve others. And there can be a joy from that. Lord, help us, use us here as Christians to love others, even those people that we don't like. Learning to love, learning to forgive, learning to be gracious, learning to be caring, learning to minister to them. What a testimony that can be to the world when we show that kind of love. Enable us to do these things, Lord, and we know at the end of the day you get the glory for this. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.